So admit it, did you get to a point where you wanted to say, yeah, Michael, preach it? <laughs> Who knew the worship leader has so much in him? Excellent. Great narrative, great storytelling using music. I um, love the Revelation song, new favorite song, willing to confess it. It's just powerful communication. Carrie Job, who recorded that song, when it was first brought to her, um, rejected it hands down. Um, she didn't write it. Another woman wrote it who had been going through an incredible physical struggle and was just thinking about the time when she'd be delivered from her physical struggles. And uh, the song was written. Um, her producers, Carrie Job's producers, brought it to her and said, uh, Carrie, we'd like you to record this. She read through it and said, nah, it'll never make it. I don't want it. And they said, Carrie, wait, read it again. Look at the words. Listen to it really slowly. So she read it again. And it began to sink into her. Somebody took the book of Revelation and put it to music. Incredible. So the God that we get to pray to right now is the God we were just singing to. Would you join me in that? Father, we come before you as a group of people who have had a pretty active week. Most of us have been running to and fro, and our hearts are probably still in that motion. Many of us here have traveled this week. Some of us have been here in the greater metro area just doing our work. But all of us have been living life at quite a pace. So first of all, we thank you for speaking through music and calming our hearts and preparing them to hear from your word. But God, we ask that you would take this collectiveness of who we are, um, people who come before you to sing, people who bring financial gifts to further the work of the church, people who bring our service, and we ask that you would take all of it, receive it as a sacrifice of our praise to you, but God, also a representation of the willingness of our hearts to want to know you better. We, we really do desire to know your nature and character better, and so we spend time looking into your word, and I just ask God that for my brothers and sisters your Holy Spirit would be at work and you would penetrate and speak through the text. Use it, Father. Use it for your glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Speaking of things being underestimated, I had a friend come out um, and repair an air conditioning unit for me um, last summer. Wasn't working well, and um, he specializes in that area. Known him for quite a few years, so he came out and serviced the unit. And while he was out, I was talking to him about um, his parents, because I'd known them for a while, and asked him how they were doing. And he said they just had the most amazing thing happen to them in the um, previous six months. About 1985, his parents had bought 10 acres, piece of property, in a fairly rural area, and not one that you would consider to be very prosperous and his parents had bought the 10 acres intending to build on the property, to build a home, to raise their family in. Uh, uh, short story is that they, they didn't have enough money to build a house, and so the land sat vacant. They never were able to develop it. And so this land that sat vacant, eventually they got to the point, um, they thought, well, we should sell this because they had turned down in the economy, they really needed the cash. And so they took the 10 acres and put it on the market for $25,000, thinking it'll sell really fast, $2,500 an acre, hard to find land at that price. Well, the people in the area where they lived, because it was such a depressed area, said to them, no way, it's not going to sell. You, you might as well just forget about it. 
Well, they tried over the course of two and a half years to sell this land, not even a phone call. They were getting pretty discouraged, but they decided to keep it on the market. Well, last spring, they get a knock at their door. Somebody did some research and found out who owned the property, didn't bother calling the number on the sign, just came to their house. And they were from a geological survey team and said to them, um, we represent a gas and oil industry, and we have discovered in this region there is oil to be pumped out of the ground. There aren't a whole lot of available plots, and your 10 acres would work perfect for us to put a pumper on it. Would you be willing to do that? It's not open to negotiation. Here's our price in the contract. If you're not interested, we'll find someone else. Handed them the contract, and they offered them $30,000 a year for 30 years. Okay? They looked at the land as a piece of vacant land, worthless. We can't even unload it one hour before. One hour after, the contract's in their hands. They're thinking, we got a million bucks. Yeah, excellent. New set of lenses that they're looking through. You're going to see in the text this morning that individuals looked at John the Baptist, John the Immerser, through a set of lenses that was inaccurate. They did not understand who he was. Jesus understood who John was. As a matter of fact, look with me up on the screen, Matthew 11, 11, and you'll see what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, if God says that, you want to pay very close attention, don't you? If God says someone is great, not only great, greater than anyone else who'd ever lived up to that point in time, you're going to really focus in on that. So we're teaching through the book of John. If you're new to New Hope, we're working through the gospel of John written by a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And this morning, he writes about John the Baptist, two different Johns. This John the baptizer that Jesus says is the greatest ever, you'd have to say, why? Why would Jesus say this is the greatest man to have ever lived up to this point in time? Now think about who we're comparing him to. Moses, Adam. Elijah, Daniel, a step out of the Bible. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great thought he was great. He really liked himself. He named himself, I'm the Great. But God said, there's one greater, John the Baptist. And you wouldn't look at him and think he's the greatest. As a matter of fact, the way he lived did not appear great at all. He's great because God chose him for an assignment. A very specific assignment that at that point in human history had never happened before. No one had ever had the privilege of saying, that guy right there, that's the Lamb of God. The Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had that unique privilege. And Jesus looked at him and said, he's the first to announce it and he's the greatest. He gets this great privilege. We've already seen in John earlier where we've looked at previous verses that John the baptizer, John the immerser, was sent from God. God sent him to do this work. And he had a very specific role. He's the first prophet in 400 years. You get to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi's book, last prophet, 400 years of silence. And then John the baptizer appears on the scene and he created an enormous sensation. People were drawn to him in flocks. This is what his message is. You'll see it on the screen, Matthew 3, 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The word that's used there for crying is kradzo. 
Greek word, this is what it literally means, as a raven or scream, to call aloud, to shriek. I had a crow as a child, a pet crow. My mom named him Jimmy. Jimmy the crow would follow me. He followed me to school. He'd follow me home. He croaked all the time. It drove me crazy. This bird was loud. You ever listen to a crow? This bird followed me to school one day. My teacher opened up the classroom window. She said, isn't that cute, kids? We have a crow out on the windowsill. She didn't know that Jimmy was my pet and wanted to be with me. He flew in and landed on my desk. He's croaking loudly. So the teacher's freaking out trying to chase him back out. That has nothing to do with the message, but... Crows, ravens are loud. So John's out in the wilderness croaking. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And this had an enormous impact on people. I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But look with me on the screen about the response of the people. Mark 1.4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So he's got a very specific role. His role is to prepare the hearts of the people for the arrival of the Messiah. And this is their response. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 3, 1. Now in the days of John the Baptist, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is freaking out the religious leaders. People are responding and coming out to him. They're hearing what he has to say, and they're coming in enormously large groups. So this is perplexing to the religious leaders of the time. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Now, before we get too far ahead in this little story, let's go back to the arrival of John the Baptist. When he arrived on the scene, when he was but a baby, before he was even conceived, Zacharias, his father, was told, you're going to have a son in your old age. Zacharias didn't believe him. God shut his mouth up for nine months just to prove to him that he's God, and so he made him be quiet. Okay, John, you don't believe me? I'll just silence you. And then when your son is born, um, Zacharias, when your son is born, you're going to name him John. So all that happened, and this angel who spoke to him specifically said some characteristic things about what John would be like. He was told that John would be one who would be powerful in his speaking. We didn't know at that time, if you read in Luke chapter 1, that God was going to send him out into the desert as a teenager, and he was going to live his teenage years, his 20s, all the way up to age 29, by himself in the desert, preparing his heart. Look with me up on the screen, Luke 180. This is talking about John the Baptist. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So apparently sometime before his bar mitzvah in the Jewish family, before he reaches the age of 13, he understands that he's set apart. And he, at some point, moves out into the wilderness. So I'm going to ask you this morning to put yourself in the camel hair suit of John. Just cloak yourself in it mentally and see what it feels like to wear animal clothing. Okay? He wears camel hair clothing. He's got a leather belt girded around his waist. And for lunch, he eats locust. And for supper, he eats locust. And for breakfast, he eats locust. 
And for a midnight snack, locust. That's what God gave him. That's what he nourishes himself on. So can you imagine, first of all, that setting? You've been set apart, John. You've been chosen by God. But by the way, you're going to be living in the wilderness eating locusts your entire life. Doesn't feel like much of a calling, does it? But that's what John said he understood was his calling. And so there's this enormous response to him when he does begin preaching because there's this weird guy out in the desert who's now beginning to declare that the kingdom is at hand, that God is coming here on earth. That's why everybody's coming out to hear him, to see what is this message this guy's got to offer. Can you imagine declaring a Messiah who is coming and you don't even know his name? We see in this text this morning that John had no clue who Jesus was prior to Jesus' arrival to be baptized. He didn't recognize him, didn't know who he was. So he's out there on the corner of Grand River and Okemos Road yelling to the crowds, Hey, pay attention! There's one who's going to redeem the entire earth that's coming right through your town. And people are going out probably just to see a bit of a show at this point. But they begin listening to him and hearing what he has to say, and they respond. I noticed that these enormous crowds came even though he didn't offer any potluck dinners. Unless you wanted locusts, of course. He didn't have any child care program. He didn't have any topical preaching. He merely declared God's word. He didn't run a popularity contest. As a matter of fact, look at how seeker-sensitive he is. I want you to see what he said to people. See, look up on the screen, Luke 3, 7. So John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you offspring of vipers. Can you imagine if you walked into a church for the first time and sat down and somebody said, you sons and daughters of snakes? That's what he's saying. Now look at this. You offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, therefore produce fruits that reflect repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, to, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now, you would think at that point people would vacate and say, this guy is really hurting my feelings. I'm leaving, okay? That's not their response. If you look at verse 10, they said, John, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? Tell us. How do we respond? They're begging for instruction. So John's being really hard on them, and he's exceedingly popular, not just because of his birth and the unique circumstances around it. That aroused a lot of curiosity but also because of the way he talked. Now, mind you, John did no miracles. He didn't feed anyone. John the Baptist merely spoke about the things of God. And look at the response of the people, Luke 3.15. While the people were filled with anticipation and they all pondered in their hearts whether perhaps John could be the Christ. He's that powerful. Now, God said he's going to come in the power and the spirit. He's that powerful that people just listening to him think, he's got to be the Mashiach. He's got to be the Messiah. It appears that every single segment of society responded to this guy, that they're all coming out except for one group. And I bet you can guess who that group is if you grew up in church. Look with me on the screen. Luke 7.30. However, the Pharisees 
and the experts in religious law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Okay, that sets the framework for you so you really understand verse 19 where we're going. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to John 1.19 this morning. If you're new to New Hope, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks right in front of you. And they're there for your benefit. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you when you leave today so that you have your own copy of God's Word. Really want you to have that in your hands. It'll also be up on the screen. John 1.19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I told you last week that John, the disciple, uses lots of legal terms, like in a courtroom setting. Well, here's one of them, the word testimony. It's the word martyria. And the word martyria is literally a courtroom, a legal term. Look at the definition for it. Evidence given judicially, a record, a report, or a witness. So John is saying, this is my courtroom testimony. These are the things that we actually saw. The Jews sent priests and Levites to him. So the Jews, in this context, are religious authorities. They're the ones who are in charge. We're not talking about the nation of Israel. The Jews is merely a term, meaning those who have control or authority. And here's what they fear. They fear an uprising. They fear that there's so many people coming out to this guy, this freak out in the desert, that the Romans are going to get upset with them, and they're going to crush a rebellion. And they might lose some of their authority. They might lose some of their power. So the Jews who are in power send a delegation out to investigate. And you notice they don't come personally. They're too good. So they send out this delegation, some underlings to investigate. They don't want to acknowledge John's importance, so they send out this investigative crew. So they're sending John a signal. We're in power. We accredit others. So in their mind, they're issuing a religious franchise They're giving John the determination whether or not he can do what he's doing, and he can only operate with their permission. That's why they're sending the investigators out. So they're asking a very logical question. Because they're the guardians of the faith, they're responsible for this faith thing in Israel. So they're asking this question, who are you? They've got every right to investigate. And their investigation is, we want to know, is he the promised Messiah? Was he the prophet Elijah? That's what they want to know also. You'll see that question come out in just a minute. Are you the Messiah? Or if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? Because there was this prophecy from the Old Testament that said just before the arrival of the Messiah that Elijah would come back. Look with me up on the screen, Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. But John's very emphatic. He says, I am not the Christ. As a matter of fact, he's so emphatic, he says it in a threefold refutation. Look at it very closely. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. A threefold refusal. I am not him. And that really emphasizes the intensity of the denial. I am not Jesus. I am not the Christ. Yet, not just these enormous crowds these numbers that we're thinking of, whatever number you're thinking in your head, I want you to see how big the response is to John. Look with me up on the screen at Matthew 3, 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. So you got the whole city, 
and all Judea, the entire nation, and then all the district around the Jordan. So we're not talking about hundreds. We're not even talking about thousands. We're talking about tens of thousands of people who are flocking out to the sky. All of Judea, the entire nation, many are responding. Many are being baptized by him. He's got a following. He should start a book tour. He should show up on the talk shows. This guy's great. Let's sign him up. But what does he want to do? All he wants to do is talk about Jesus. He's not there for himself. He's not there to talk about John because he understands Jesus is the Word, capital W, Logos. He's the big guy. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice of one in the wilderness. I'm nothing. So verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Are you Elijah? Now, that's kind of a strange question, isn't it? Why is this so strange? First of all, this really poses a significant problem because Jesus has said, John is Elijah. Yet John says, I'm not Elijah. As a matter of fact, the angel who visited Zacharias, John's dad, said, he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. Look with me up on the screen, Luke 1.15. This is an angel talking to John the Baptist's dad. For he will be great before the Lord, verse 17, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. Now, if you grew up in church, you understand that the prophet Elijah, when he left earth, was not as a dead man. God took him to heaven, caught him away. And so the Jews had this strong belief that when Elijah would come back because of that prophecy, he would come back in bodily form, that he was going to physically be on the earth. And so they expected Elijah to be there again, and that's why they're saying, are you Elijah? Do you know that even today at Passover time, Jewish families, when they set the table for Passover dinner, they leave an empty chair at the table, and they set a dinner plate and forks, for the potential of the arrival of Elijah? Every Jewish family, every time they practice Passover Seder, the Passover dinner, they leave an empty chair at the table because they expect Elijah to come back again, and they want to be ready. And so John not only speaks like Elijah, he talks like Elijah, he looks like Elijah. Look with me on the screen, Mark 1.6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. John also called for repentance out in the desert. Elijah did the same thing. So it's very logical. So how can John say he's not Elijah when Jesus says he is? Look with me on the screen. Matthew eleven fourteen. This is Jesus speaking. John himself is Elijah who is to come. Now, you don't want to go against what God said. So how is John taking on this cloak of, I'm not Elijah the prophet. I found this very fascinating, really, really good quote from a man who's a theologian by the name of Leon Morris who was looking at this passage. I wish I could claim it my own, but this is Leon. This is great insight. 
No man is what he is in his own eyes. He really is only as he is known to God. At a later time, Jesus equated John with Elijah of Malachi's prophecy, but that does not carry with it the implication that John himself was aware of the true position. Jesus confers on John his true significance. Isn't that good? That's great. No man is what he himself thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. So men, when God says you're sons of God, you're really sons of God. Ladies, when God says you're daughters of the king, you really are daughters of the king. Young men, when God says you're a warrior for the kingdom, you are a warrior for the kingdom. Jesus confers upon you your true significance. So just because John didn't recognize that he was in the spirit and the power of Elijah doesn't mean that he wasn't. So we would say John is not the physical Elijah because that has totally different implications. But he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah like the angel said to Zacharias. So when Jesus said to his disciples, John is the Elijah who was to come, he also says next, if you will accept it, meaning he's there in the spirit. He's a kind of Elijah. He comes in that power. So they've got their checkboard out now. These guys are their delegation. They're coming there and saying, oh, wait now. Okay, you're not the Messiah? Check. You're not Elijah? Check. Okay, are you the prophet? Well, who's the prophet? Well, back when Moses was alive, Moses understood from a revelation from God that God was going to bring another powerful prophet in the land again. This is where it comes from, actually, Deuteronomy 18.15. You'll see it on the screen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, meaning like Moses, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now, verse 18, this is God talking. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, among the Jews, ancient Jews, there was no agreement whatsoever about who this prophet would be. Some thought he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Some thought he would actually be the Messiah. They didn't understand, and so they had all these different emotions tied up around who is the prophet. This delegation now is becoming really concerned because now they've asked him, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the Messiah? No. So they're asking for his credentials, and they've got to return with a report. And they can't return with a report because John's no help whatsoever. Their checklist is empty. And so they really start pushing him. They're tired of playing 20 questions with him. And now they're out of options. And so they say, who are you then? Answer us. We've got to take back an answer to those who sent us. Will you give us some information? And his response is, I'll tell you, but you won't like it. Look at his response. Verse 23. He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now that is not what they expected to hear. No way. Because what he did, as someone who was incredibly popular, with tens of thousands of people surrounding him, he's saying, I'm nothing. I'm just a voice, incredible humility. And he's downplaying his own prominence. He's a voice with an incredible message, though. 
Prepare the way of the Lord. This is more than just a humble confession here. This is way more. This is an Old Testament prophecy. And I want you to understand the context and how this is used. First of all, when you see up in verse 23 where it says, The Lord, if in your Bible it's accurate, it should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a substitution for YHWH the name that was unpronounceable among the Hebrews. They would not say the name Yahovah. So they pulled out all the vowels, and they only put in Y-H-W-H. The English translation for that, because of the German Bible and the way that it was translated, is the Lord. But it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So people understood that John was referring to the God of the universe, He's speaking of the name unmentionable. He's taking us back to Isaiah. So John takes them back by making this quote, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And immediately these very religious people understand what he's doing. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the most revered prophet, Isaiah. So here's the actual quote up on the screen, Isaiah 43. I want you to see this from Isaiah himself. A voice is calling Clear the way for the Lord. And do you see? That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That should say, clear the way for Yahovah, the God of wonders. He's coming here. So let me finish this. The God of the, for the Lord in the wilderness makes smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. You understand at this period of time there was no highway I-96. There's no US-127. So kings, in advance of their travels, moving from one city to another city, would send out an advance team. Not a team of security guards, a team of highway repairmen, people who would throw the stones out of the path, who would fill in the ruts, people who would take the high places and make them low, and the low places and make them high, and make a broad plain so that when he went by in his chariot, the king's riding on a smooth surface because he's really important. So this is what John is saying. In the literal Greek, it's saying a path for the Lord to travel. John's saying, I'm merely a highway worker. I'm just filling in potholes. I'm a voice in the wilderness saying, get your highways together because the king of kings is about to come. The one coming after me, he's more than anyone ever dreamed of. Incomprehensible. The God, Yahovah of the Old Testament is about to be among you and you aren't even going to recognize him. Look with me at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Well, that helps us understand verse 19, where it said the Jews sent them out. So it says specifically, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, verse 25. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. <laughs> Don't you love these legalists? Okay. You're not the Christ. You're not the prophet. You're not Elijah. Well, Okay, on our clipboard right here, it says, then you're not supposed to be baptizing. What are you doing out here? You have no authority. We didn't give you a franchise to do this. You have no right. So they're sent from the Pharisees, and they want to know this question. 
because this is the other purpose for their visit. This is the other reason that they came out because there's far more going on here than what appears on the surface. The Pharisees' question is a challenge, and they're challenging his authority. You understand that baptism is not new. It didn't just start at the time of Christ. Baptism goes way back before the time of Jesus. Jesus took what baptism was and said, you baptize people because it has a significant meaning. And these individuals understood what that significant meaning was. When Jews at this period of time would baptize someone, they would only baptize Gentiles, people who were non-Jewish, who wanted to become Jewish, people who were Gentiles living in sin, who wanted to leave their former life behind and become a follower of Judaism. So when Jews baptized someone, they're proselytes. They were baptizing individuals who were saying, I'm living in sin, but I want a brand new beginning, and this is my direction. And so the individuals here are watching this, and they understand John is baptizing Jews. Jews are not supposed to be living in sin. This was anathema to them. Look with me up on the screen. It's coming from Matthew and from Mark. All the people of Jerusalem were coming, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. These are not Gentiles being indicted. These are Jews who are saying, yeah, we're children of the covenant. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. But we've got to get our act together because the king is about to come. And many are believing John. Many are coming to him, and they're making this public expression of, we're living in sin, and we want to turn. But the Pharisees viewed the Jews as already in God's kingdom because they're born Jews. You're already in. You don't need to be baptized. But John's saying, no, you guys got it wrong. We all have to get our hearts right. They're convinced being Jewish was enough by their heritage John's saying, it's a heart issue. And so what you see going on here is the religious system is under siege, and John is leading the charge to help people get their heart right. So pick it up with me at verse 26. This is where we're going to wrap it up today. John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, if you grew up in church, you're going to anticipate John's statement. John's statement is, I baptize in water. Well, if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you expect the next words to come out of his mouth to say, but the one that's coming next, he's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. That isn't what he says here, is it? I baptize in water. Look what he's doing. He's taking the focus off himself, and he's pointing back to Jesus again. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. See, John doesn't want to get into a debate about baptism. He's not interested in a debate about legalism. He's interested in pointing people to the king. Understand the significance of what he just said. Among rabbis... The disciples who followed them served their rabbis. 
As a matter of fact, John is regarded, John the Baptist is regarded as a rabbi. And so he's got a following of young men around him who are called his disciples. Disciples were permitted to serve their rabbi, to do things for them throughout the day. But there was one thing they were never allowed to do under Jewish law. They were never allowed to untie the sandals of their rabbi. That was reserved for the lowest of the lowest slaves, the one who would haul out your bedroom waste or your garbage. That was the one who was permitted to untie the sandals because the human foot was so dirty and stinky walking the desert streets. So the lowest of the lowest, and John is saying, it's so low, but I'm not even worthy to do that. He's so great. Matter of fact, look with me at this quote from a rabbi up on the screen. This is um, an ancient quote that was taken out of archaeology, a rabbinic saying, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. And all the delegation wants to do is talk about the legalism of what he's doing. They're so interested in getting their clipboard filled out. They're missing entirely what's going on here. Yahovah is coming among them. The message is very simple, John has. Get your hearts right because the king is coming. He's about to enter your presence. I'd say that's where we're going to end today because I've got like another 45 minutes worth of notes here and I'm not going to do that to you, okay? So we'll jump back into it next week. But here's where I want to end. You've still got your notes if you picked them up this morning as you came in, the little white blanks. Hang on to those till next week and you'll get to fill out the rest of the blanks there. But there's a part on those notes, those, those last three bullet points I want to go over with you right now just before I let you go. Here's the significance of what I see coming out of this text so far. John is an incredible model of humility and servanthood. He does not agonize at all over the fact that he can't become more prominent. You're going to really see that come out next week when his disciples leave him to go follow Jesus. Remarkable humility. John also does not assume that just because a person is religious that they're righteous. He's talking very directly to the people who think they're going to be on the 50-yard line in heaven. He's speaking right to them. And he's not assuming that just because they're religious or they go to the temple, that they're righteous. He's saying, get your act together. And I see, thirdly, a lesson about knowing and doing the will of God here. And it is so incredible to me. John, as a young man who disappeared into the desert is told by God specifically what he's supposed to do without even knowing the name of Jesus. He has no picture to go by. And yet he's standing out in the wilderness proclaiming what's about to happen. And as you're going to see next week, when he meets Jesus, it is so cool because then it all clicks for him. And it's while he's doing his job, while he's doing what God called him to do, The master shows up, and that's when John makes this proclamation. There he goes, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I tell you, church, I wish that God would grant us to become more like John, the immerser, that we could live in that kind of obedience, totally sold out to ourselves, willing to proclaim to everyone that we know, hey, 
bring the low places up. Bring the high places down because the king is about to come. Very, very cool. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us insight through the work of your Holy Spirit. I don't know how you're going to apply it to each individual life here this morning, but I know that you intend to, that every single person sitting here, man, woman, and child, can take away what you want them to know. So, Father, I ask through the power of your Spirit, you would speak to each person individually. Even as they leave this auditorium and go about their activities this afternoon, don't let them forget these truths. God, I ask that in Jesus' name. I ask that you would make them bold in recognizing that we have a story to proclaim and it's life-changing. Thank you, Father, for the truths that we've been able to examine. We ask that you would apply it to our heart. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.